what's up, Surf Splendor listeners. I'm your host, David Scales. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a special guest for you, actually. Um, the founder of SurfAid, Dr. Dave Jenkins. I'm sure that you've heard of SurfAid. Maybe you don't fully understand the work that they do, but we get into that in today's show. And um, he's got a really illustrious career, um, but is in... But his life's work is this SurfAid project, which he founded in 2000. So it's really something that we feel a need to focus and shed some light on, something that any of you listeners can participate and get involved in. They're doing really good work in very remote regions of the world where um, other aid organizations really struggle to figure out how to access those parts of the world. And it turns out, you know, surfers go to those very remote regions. And that's why uh, Dr. Jenkins chose these specific places to focus on. Specifically, Indonesia really is where the majority of their work goes. But um, but again, we'll get into all of those details in the show. Surfaid.org is their website. And then, of course, we'll have a link to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then Scott and I used the second half of the show to focus on recapping the Hurley Lowers Pro uh, thus far. The event isn't over. There's one more day to run, but we have a number of lay days coming up. And so we figured since we're together, let's break it down because a lot of really interesting things have happened in the event. Uh, retirements, real big judging debacles, interference, nuance that we haven't really ever seen before. Um, just really a lot of stuff, interesting boards, blah, blah, blah. Again, you have to listen to the show if you want to know. All right. Enjoy the show. Enjoy Dr. Jenkins. Um, get involved on surfaid.org. And, uh, without further ado, I'll be back at the end to sign us off. Hell yeah. That's a no, no. Down the line, Surf Talk Radio, Scott Bass, David Lee Scales with you on this Tuesday. No, Monday. It's a Monday, and it is the 14th of September. It's uh, 9.35 in the morning in Southern California. And uh, we've got sort of a non-traditional traditional version of Down the Line Surf Talk Radio for you. Um, first, let me say good morning to my co-host, David. Morning, everybody. Right in the middle of the Trestles event, too. So um, almost completed the event, but we've got one day left, and we've got, a looks like, maybe three or four down days, lay days in between. So we've got a more pressing topic to discuss today. We'll be talking about my golf game, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that was just a hard attempt at humor. But um, we are super stoked to have my good friend, Dr. Dave Jenkins from SurfAid International here. Good morning, Dr. Dave. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, David. Do you need Dave to speak a little closer or is he good? That's good. Am I too close? Sure. Probably. Equal it out by backing up a little bit. All right. Um, You know, Dave, you might not know this, but um, Dr. Dave and I were on a trip. um, And I'm not sure exactly the year. I want to say it was like 2004. Bullseye. 2004. And that was um, Waves of Compassion, right? Yeah. And it was you and I and... Rasta. 2005. 2005, Monday, right. Monday morningitis. A mentalized surf trip, right? With yeah. And we had a dentist on board and his wife and Dave Rostovich and um, Strider and Ben Bourgeois and Conan Hayes and Keith Malloy and mm. 
uh, Jeff Devine, Steve Barilotti. So we had this big trip we did with Surfer Magazine, and we took this canoe. Remember up into the up into the uh, jungles of the Mentawai, probably like Similu Island or one of those ones, right? And um, we took this canoe up there. Have I told you this story? No. So we, it was hot like the Mentawais are, you know, and steamy. And we took this canoe up this river into the mountains and. Um, and we trudged through some mud, you know, and eventually we got to this this tribe or this village where there was this Uma, which is a, like a large community home. Like think of a building like this big where the whole tribe of Mentawai villagers live. And in this Uma that's raised above this pig bed, there's a pigsty below us. There's fires and there's cooking and there's, you know, there's the women over there and the children and, you know, the romper room over there and the men are over there BSing, you know, and sharpening their arrows or whatever they're doing. And so we, we take this trip to this Uma and we are taught, Dave, right, about um, how they get their clothes from the bark of a tree and and how they hunt and various things. And excuse me, I do have a bit of a cold. And, uh, and it was kind of fascinating because as the evening went on, right, it got kind of dark and I remember it was hot and by the way there was no air conditioning I was I'm rather spoiled I needed you know I needed some pampering I was looking around for the concierge in this Uma and there wasn't one and um, and eventually they brought up the pig right that we were going to eat and they slit the pig's throat and they bled it out right there in front of us and they chopped it up and they pulled the pig's heart out and it went and it was beating in the guy's hand and he looked at Rasta. Of course, Dave Rostovich is just completely involved. He's just he at this point he's gone like apocalypse. Now he's got paint on his face, like like blood, like monkey blood, and he's just fully involved. He's got his little drum and he's drumming and doing seances. And, and I was about to pass out from the smoke and just everything. I was completely out of my element. I'm I'm completely soft. Yeah. And um, and it was rather fascinating. And that's sort of my short version of of what went down. But they cooked the pig for us and we ate it and. There was monkey skulls. Remember all the monkey skulls? And anyway, that's my trip with Doctor Dave. I just thought it would be a good way to bring I, I, it. What are your reminiscences about? Well, I that? remember that um, we had great surf, and we went there, and we looked at our programs and things. But then, as soon as everyone got back into telephone range, they all did the same thing. They rang the girlfriends or partners and raved about that night they spent with the shaman and the loincloths and. And what was particularly interesting to me was I remember Strider being, you know, really the funny guy that he is. He was being loud and laughing and there was a lot of kind of nervous noise. And then the shaman started chanting and everything, and even quite the local people, everything just sort of quietened down. And we, we went into trances hmm. and it was quite fascinating. And we all had a, even though we were lying on wood, most of us had a pretty good night's sleep. But yeah, it yeah. was a... The, the shaman are some of the consistently happiest people I've ever met. They don't seem to know what neurosis is mm. or anxiety. I mean, they, you know, they have lots of challenges, but they teach me every time I go up there about how, how it's possible to be psychologically. Um, the, I remember walking through mud up to my neck and it was pouring with rain and there was a low-hanging branch. And I didn't see it because I had a hood on mm. trying to protect myself with from the rain which was a silly idea to begin with and I just went into literally the whole the sound of my forehead on this forehead and they just cracked up laughing they thought that was the funniest thing which of course it is but 
yeah, again, they just um, they have some kind of ease, an easy joy that stems from being at service, which is relevant to what we're talking about. Their whole mission in life is to serve their tribe and to take care of them. Mm. And, um, and they dedicate their whole lives to that. And it gives them some kind of ease and joy that, that few of us have in the West. Sure. Well, that was a fascinating night. And I think trance, I do remember just almost being out of body. Like I was almost sick to my stomach just with all the smells and the sounds. And just it was all new and different to me. And again, I'm rather soft, you know, like I want the Ritz-Carlton in a tea time. You know, this is complete opposite of what I was about. Um, and and I'm sure it showed. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but But I do remember just... Just Rasta and those guys just... And Sonny Miller was on that trip, too. And Sonny yeah. got right... Those guys just got right into it. I think there yeah. might have been a bottle of Jack Daniels or something. Wherever the Sonny was, Jack. Yeah. And uh, and and Dave Rostovich became a part of the band. Like, he was he yeah. was the band leader. And all the shaman were just like... And Dave had this trippy drum. That I mean, Swiss kind of... Ding, yeah. Ding, dong, dong, yeah. Yeah, they were just like... And it was it was complete heart of darkness apocalypse. Now, like I'm going to the other side. I'm not coming back. Type <laughs> stuff. But anyway, um, Dave is here, and uh, Dave is from Surfade, and that was a Surfade trip in 2005. And here we are, 2015, and we're going strong with Surfade. And we just had the Surfade Malibu Cup this weekend. You and I surfed in it. Yeah. The waves were pumping at first point. It was a glorious weekend for surf and for Surfade. And we raised some money, right? How much money did we raise? Well, it's going to come in at least 170000 by the time we finish. We've got a couple of things. We're not afraid to go retro. And you can still give us money right now. In fact, logging onto the website and donating. So, Well, a lot of people think about surfing and they, and they initially, you know, the initial push back then was let's stop malaria and the mentwise. Here are these surfers that go and we... We partake of this resource, these great waves, and are we giving back? And you know what? Yes, we are. We can give back now through what SurfAid does mm. and help these people out. And malaria, and step in anytime, but I'm under the impression that it's been basically eradicated from the area based on all the land camps that are popping up everywhere. And no one seems to, when I was out there this year, there was no talk of malaria. Um, and so now uh, I think we're at a place where SurfAid is really about this mother and child um, health issue, right? Like we need to get the child, the infant mortality rate up, so or down, I should say, so that we're um, at a place where the the child can get to that fifth year, and then from there they're strong and they can grow and be productive members of their society. So, um, tell me a little bit about that mother and child initiative, and is in fact malaria eradicated? Okay, malaria is not eradicated. We actually never set out to eradicate it because. We knew that's a multi-million dollar exercise in remote islands like that. And it's not cost effective. What is cost effective is what we have done and achieved is to dramatically reduce the turnover of the parasite in the whole, all those communities. So it's true that um, the rates of malaria has, are down. I mean, we had crazy rates in some, you know, like every third kid. Just any random day, you take a blood sample, you'd find the parasite. It's down to something like one in a hundred now. Um, so it's still there. We're not even trying to eradicate it. Um, that day will come when the vaccine comes, um, and then we'll be full on trying to eradicate it. But it's it's clear from the science that it's much better return on your investment, our donors' investment, 
to look at the other simple things. There's a collection of handful of behaviors that if we can get those local people doing, we radically transform the health of their children and the women as well who have the children. So it's things like basic hygiene, basic sanitation, let's get the woman having antenatal care, basic understanding what the importance of having a clean birth. Hey, why not wash your perineum when you go into labor? Hey, don't cut the cord with a dirty piece of bamboo, which is what they were doing. Just boil a knife and, and cut that. Hey, put the baby straight onto the breast, straight after delivery, and get them suckling because that's going to cause a release of hormones. It's going to contract your uterus and stop you bleeding to death. But it's also going to inject your baby with colostrum which is full of all the antibodies, which is going to protect you from the viruses and bacteria that are going to try and get in and kill your child. So, uh, and then, then don't stop breastfeeding for six months. Give nothing but breast milk. And that was very different for these people. Very, very new idea. But when they have a fat, healthy baby that is just easy to take care of, Compared to the baby they had before, which was grotty, malnourished, constantly with snotty noses, coughs, fevers, unhappy, difficult to be, they they see it. I mean, I've walked into villages and they literally had fat, healthy babies thrown at me, almost saying, look at my fat, healthy baby. They're so happy, so proud, and it's breast milk, and they get it. And so we focus on those handful of behaviors. They're very low cost, but they're very high impact. And our challenge was to be able to put that into a really eloquent model that we could rely on so that we had a new village. We knew that if we did this model in this way, it was going to have a great result. And we've got there. So that's not easy. Obviously, we all try and change behaviors and most of us fail most of the time. So it's not easy. It's quite sophisticated sociology and anthropology and psychology is this mix but we've learned how to do it we've learned how to we've taken it to NIAS the latest results from NIAS was just in one of our projects we have a number of projects but in one of our projects we used to have 25 children dying every year it's down to five we used to have eight women dying every year in birth we haven't had a woman die in that group for the last two years it'll probably happen again but it's just a complete collapse of childhood and maternal mortality we know it's the real deal but the next challenge is to be able to replicate that in different cultures in different locations so we have started in Sumbawa a very different culture to Nias and different to Mentali but we've got a mother child program started there and we're just starting in Sumba as well where the child mortality is is shocking. And the malaria is shocking too, as bad as the Mentawi, if not worse, actually. So now the challenge to surf aid is, let's replicate that. Let's We've shown it can be incredibly successful. We've measured everything. We've proven it. But let's do it again in a bigger population. The bigger the population, the stronger your scientific results. Because we only had smaller numbers. Because we want to get to be able to you know, literally at the Clinton initiative, we want to be able to stand up and go, these are our results. And we did it here, we did it there, and they're consistent. And this is because the world needs a model for remote areas. We do not, if you look at all of the development issues, we do not have a replicable, scalable, cost-effective model for remote areas. And yet that's where the children are dying now. 
Child mortality has dropped dramatically in the last 20 years. But the area where it hasn't dropped is remote areas. And that's where surfers go, <laughs> interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the child mortality rates are down in some of the areas of Indonesia, but not in the remote areas. So we want to be the most effective. We want to give our donors the biggest return. When I want to look a donor in the eye and say, you could have given to a thousand things, but if you give to this thing, this model, then it's going to transform their health for good. Because those mums with the fat, healthy babies, they teach their children. They're convinced. So you get you get generational change. So the dollar you give us today will echo on for generations long after we've left the planet. You're transforming communities. So we're not going back to not wearing seatbelts. They don't go back to not giving exclusive breast, breast milk. How... Um... <clears throat> How important has it been when we started to go out to the Mentawise in the 90s, um, up to even 2005, um, going on to land for the surfers that were on a boat was a, a it just didn't happen. Mm. And now there's this, you know, there's a rise in land. Land camps are everywhere out there. And so the surfers are having a closer relationship with the locals. And I imagine that's been beneficial when... I mean, is it a, the case where you get surfers going, hey, I was on land, I saw these people, how can I help them? Have you noticed that land camps and the growth of land camps in the Mentawise has been beneficial for you? Not really. Um, I think they are beneficial in some ways, and I know some of the owners of the camps, and I know they're sensitive to the issues, and they, they do their own, they help people in their own way. So I think there has definitely been some benefits to the local people. But we haven't seen an upsurge of people interested in supporting what we do as a result of it. Right. Um, some, there's been the odd one, yeah. but uh, but not sort of very significantly. I think that is a major change, like you say. And it there are definitely good things and there's definitely a downside to that because local people see the habits, you know, including kind of the way we party and uh, that kind of thing. So that's there could be some downside of that as well. Yeah. There, will, there will be some downside. But it's kind of an ever There's always that. There's always the ups and downs of tourism. Yeah. Mm. Um, tell me about the um, fundraising in, in North America. I know that it's been challenging, especially in respect to down under in New Zealand and Australia, where the surf community is a lot closer to this issue. Aaron and I talked a lot about man it must be an uphill battle here in north america or in the northern uh, or in this you know part of the world because it's so removed right yeah uh is this a challenge is this um how, how do you address that if it in fact is a challenge well it was certainly a challenge after the you know the financial crisis and the surf industry got really whacked and there wasn't enough money to support charities and so and then there's a lot of other charities in the field now and so there's a number of factors that kind of come together in a perfect storm and and while yeah we've done very well in australia our, our growth rate's been growing quite uh, quite significantly and but uh, recently things are turning around here for us in, in america and we are actually expecting a really strong future here um, but and and the reason for that is because of these results, because you know SurfAid always wanted to do mother-child malaria mother-child programs, but we turned out to be one of the world's best emergency response organisations. Yeah. So we've done five emergency responses, and every time that happened, 
the mother-child programs collapsed in kind of in a way that was sort of difficult. We never had a chance to get these stats. We've got those stats now, so that is very helpful for smart philanthropists, people who understand the importance of measuring everything. Right. You can't get a result by you can't make assumptions in this game. You can't say, well, if I drop X off, you're going to get Y. That does not happen. And so you've got to measure actual impact, right? not just giving stuff. Yeah. That's not a result. So now that we've got these things um, and we get, we, I've got friends like your good self and the media, we need to, we need to get those results out because they're very, very dramatic and they're very significant. If an earthquake happened or a tsunami occurred you know, tomorrow, I mean, in many ways, you mentioned it. You sort of are a first responder. Is it? Do you have the um, the, the procedures and the policies in place where you can literally turn on the first response and, and you know, it's code code three and lights yeah. and sirens and you're off to these yeah. areas. You've got boats in the water yeah. or helicopters. Yeah. And so that's sort of a different, I mean, in a way, you have two missions, right? You're, you're on standby as a first responder and then you've got this much larger sort of global mother-child initiative to these very remote areas. Yeah. It's an incredible challenge for us. I mean, the job's challenging enough. What we've done, um, our our strategy after thinking through all of this, is that when the last uh, tsunami in 2010 in the Mentawe, uh, Doctors Without Borders came out, right? And we did 90% of the emergency response. There were over 100 other NGOs. SurfAid did 90%. Of the, NG, of, of the first two weeks, the most critical two weeks, because we were the ones with the boats. We had, you know, we had the Indus Trader and we had Huey and these boats could handle the storm that actually came with that. Um, and so they took one look at the situation and said, you know, we can't add to this, but they noticed what we were doing and we started talking. So our strategy now, we have a, a partnership set up with one of the best and biggest aid organizations on the planet, Doctors Without Borders. When that thing triggers, we'll be in conversation. And our role will be to do what we do best, partner with the local charter boats. We know the area. We're also very good at securing all the requirements and, you know. Paying off the officials. The other NGOs turn up. There were no tents left. There were no hammers or nails left. We had them all. They're on the boats and they're already being distributed. So we have local networks as far as Jakarta and Medan all lined up, phone numbers. They know who we are. Boom, 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 boom. We've got the two or three people to get in place. So, yeah, we're ready for it which means uh, that's one reason. And the other reason is now that we've moved to Sumba and Sumbawa, Touchwood, they're not going to get those tsunamis. They're not a history of them. There's one more big earthquake and tsunami predicted for their whole Mentawai Nias chain, according to the geologists, and it's overdue. It will happen. It'll certainly happen in our lifetime. So, yeah, we, we, we know what we need to do. That will make it um, still. It's obviously going to be a massive challenge for us. But uh, at least we'll be better prepared this time. Well, tell tell us a little bit about you, Doctor Dave. I know you surf, but um, <laughs> and you're a Kiwi, right? Yeah. And um, tell us a little bit about your schooling. My schooling? Yeah. Well, I went to medical school in, in Dunedin, which is when I gave up competitive rugby. I went into a, a we a ruck we call that, which is kind of like a wrestle with boots and sprigs, and uh, and I just realized I'd lost my aggression. 
And I was telling a friend and he said, well, I'll come surfing with me. There's nothing aggressive about that. So I, I took up surfing when I was at medical school. I remember, uh, you know, it's snowing on the beach and running across the snow in good old Dunedin where there are some great waves, but it's very, very cold. And, uh, and then, um, yeah, went from there into general practice. And then I was an academic for five or six years. And then I was a corporate doc. And I was, my dream was to buy a yacht and sail away and um, sail the world. And it was at that point when I was sort of uh, working for the big corporate on a nice package and just about to get there, actually, when I went surfing to the Mentawai. So so it changed my dream around a bit. When was that? I went surfing 1999 to the Mentawais. Where, where were you working with the corporate package? Singapore. Got it. So, you know, I could just it was a bit of a little quick trip across the, across the seas and then a, a boat out to the islands. Yeah. Um, I was just going to, like, why Why did you develop a passion for that part of the world, other than traveling and surfing there? Um, well, I, I first went to Singapore following the, my career, really, and following this dream, because I knew I could buy a boat at the end of it and sail away. Um, when is that happening, by the way? What's that? The dream. When does the dream happen? Well, actually, I've realized that it was probably a good thing that I didn't because I could be dead by now. I'm a good sailor, but I'm not very good at um, maintaining. I'm not a sparky, and you, you've got to have incredible skills to sail the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm just waiting for a few friends to buy the yacht, and then right. I'll, I'll come on board as the dock. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so no, I love that region of the world. I've fallen in love with... Um, Indonesia and um, the people and you know the, the their ability to get through life smiling with very little I think that teaches me something every day yeah and um, so yeah I'm not I'm not leaving in a hurry how do like traveling surfers get involved other than maybe donating financially if there's surfers or do you have a need for volunteers or anything like that yeah look we started off having volunteers and then it just we realized that we have a very set policy. We want to give our donors the best return on investment. And that turns out to be the best thing for the people mm-hmm. because it means we're very soft touch. We demand, expect them to do all the work. Okay, so our staff, we are trained to, are trained to be sophisticated change agents. They don't do any of the work. We don't give out stuff. And um, so what that, what that means in effect is that people coming in use too many resources they're uh, you know they've got a good heart they may even have some skills but they don't know how to speak the language they don't know the cultures and we just ran into problem after problem we would have to spend time and money on them Mm -hmm. and so it doesn't work from our philosophy and our principles point of view Um, i would say the the commonest thing that my experience of people is they underestimate how they can help they underestimate if they think if they have to create a strategy, if they sat down and think, hey, isn't Uncle John on that foundation? Don't they do mother child work? Maybe I can introduce them. Or, you know, obviously donating, fundraising, those things are very important. Media, um, you know, sometimes pro bono work, graphic work, that kind of thing helps us a lot. Um, so those are the things that can really help us. And understanding what we, what we do, logging on, being able to talk about us, spread the word understanding why our model is such an effective one um, and where we're going, our vision for it, and be able to talk eloquently about that helps us a lot if a lot of people start doing it. It seems like um, 
you know, the, the Indonesian island chain, all 5,000 islands or however many there are mm-hmm. out there, there's plenty of remote areas for you to go. Okay, after we are successful in Sumba and Sumbawa and Nias and all these, you know, these four or five other places. Um, uh, now we now can go, we can find, go find another, another remote, remote area, area in maybe, maybe the, the eastern, eastern part, part of Indonesia, Indonesia or whatever. Like, they're, they're, you're not you're at not a loss, loss for places where you can, can find remote areas, areas that need help with this mother-child, uh, I don't know, what, what do you call it, mother-child mission? Mother-child health project. Mother-child health project. So because we're focusing, Surfate is focusing on remote uh, destination. Uh, destination. It sort of it sort takes, takes away right, right, from, from, from like, like this, this part, part of the world. world. Like there's, there's not, not a lot of remote areas. Because I was talking to Aaron a couple months ago, and I'm like, well, well is Surfe doing anything in Nicaragua? Or is Surfe doing anything in Guatemala? Or wherever, where where it's a little closer to my backyard, where I might be more willing to give because my mates from Guatemala, or whatever, you know, I'm just riffing here kind of hypothetically. Yeah. Um, and there just, there just aren't any remote areas, areas on this part of the world, world where you could attach this mother-child health project. And you've but you've got a ton down there in Indonesia. So is your focus just down there? It has been, and we will be there for a long time to come. We are also aware and have the desire to spread our model into another culture and into another country. And we have had some preliminary discussions about that, and we are committed to doing that. We need, um, because we represent surfers at the end of the day, and we have a lot of non-surfers too who donate just because our model's so effective and they want an effective place to put their philanthropic dollar. But at the heart of surfing, a is still surfing and representing the give-back philosophy. So we recognize that for a lot of our American donors, exactly what you say. They, they would like to see something happen in South America. And, and that's the area that we're talking about uh, doing that. But we need three things. You know, We've learned what we need to, to be cost-effective in these areas. We need a local partner, a very, very good one. Uh, we need to be sure that there's going to be an ongoing stream of income because it's the worst thing to do for a community is to start something and have to stop. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just, and so, and obviously we need need, we need the need, we need the area that needs, and, and it doesn't have to be necessarily remote either, but with there's maternal child mortality and health issues, very significant issues. And that, that's what we need. So, and if it's just outside a city, that's okay. If it's a, a linked to a surfing zone um, where we want to give back to, then that's kind of going to be be it. So I think you will see that happen sometime. I'm not promising when, but you will see that happen um, with with SurfAid. Well, cool. Um, I guess uh, listeners can go to SurfAid.org and find out more about what's happening right with SurfAid and to donate. Absolutely. Potentially do some pro bono work if they need it. Yep. And um, there's certainly contact information on the website, surfaid.org. And Dr. Dave, thank you so much for inviting me to surf at Malibu. (laughs) I enjoyed the heck out of it. And uh, I really appreciate being involved there. That was fun. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Um, what, have, what were some of the highlights of the Malibu thing, of the surf event? Um, well, the highlights were the waves were pumping. Were they it was really? so fun. It was like three to four feet with an occasional five-foot set at first point, you know. And so on Friday, I mean, I hate to make it about me but I'll, you know I got to surf in an expression session for an hour you know at pumping first point with like 15 guys in the water crazy I got 25 waves and that right there I was like everything else is gravy totally you know what'd you ride I rode a brand new longboard that I just got from my buddy Wayne Rich every time I ask you what'd you ride it's always a brand new something <laughs> or something that's only a month old it's like you know, this board I had I just waxed it up and and uh it was shortboardable, but I wanted to get, I wanted to learn this new board. So I spent an hour on it, just kind of dialing it in, you know? Was that your first session on it? Yeah. Dude, look at you. You're like a A list WCT. You're taking out a freshie in the comp. <laughs> well, this was the expression session. So, so the comp, no, nothing to lose then. Right. It was just learning the board. And um, the comp, though, I rode my shortboard because it was this team thing, right? Six guys on our team. And we have one pro surfer, and the pro like anchors our team. So our right. pro is Nick Rosa. Do you know Nick? Yeah, Nick from surf. Ventura Reef yeah. Kid. Super hot surfer. Yeah. So we each get to catch two waves. And I was the first surfer, and I got to catch two waves. But my, I guess my point is, is they're like, hey, we, we, we think shortboarding is a better call here because they're seeing, the judges are scoring shortboarding higher. So, which was great. I, you know, I had, I loved it. You know, so I went out there, caught two killer set waves into the beach and ripped them. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> what'd you ride for the shortboard? Um, like a five nine quad fin, Wayne Rich quad fin thing, a little like kind of tweener fish. You riding all Wayne Rich's quiver? Yeah, there. yeah. Well, he's the man. So, did they score your rides? What'd you score? Yeah, I don't know what I scored. But Come on, I don't. I didn't okay. check the scores, but right. I'm sh I'm sure I, I. Let's put it this way: I did kind of everything that I'm capable of doing, which isn't much, but good. I went fast. You yeah. know, if you I start started to realize that I can go from A to B really fast and do like these like little check turns and kind of banks and stuff, but then you see guys like Nick Rosa and Anthony Petruso and even Strider. These guys are just they're on three fins and they're kind of doing more vertical turns and I'm just, you know, 50 year old guy in relaxed fit jeans, you know, just cruising. Yeah. You wear jeans while you're surfing? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. With your visor? 
Yeah. Fashion statement. And Puka. Puka shell necklace. Nice. Yeah, I heard- Bell bottoms. I heard Strider on the webcast for the Trestles event yesterday during like the morning show. They didn't run the event, but um, I think Todd Klein mentioned his performance at the Malibu Cup and said that uh, he made a priority mistake or something. Strider did. Oh. He, he ended up losing the heat based on a priority error. That might have been a different event. I don't oh, even okay. recall seeing Strider. I think they were running. I think he was working down at Lowers. This was on Saturday. Oh, okay. They ran the event Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was the day of the whole. Oh, okay. By the way, we have to come up with a name for what happened. Like, I, I'm struggling here. I came up with Richie Portagate or Ariel Gate. It's going to have a gate at the end, as of it course, always does. Of yeah. That's the problem. Trestle's Gate, or I don't know. Help me out. Well, well, let's we'll get into that. Um, are there winners at the Malibu event? Like, who are the big winners? Well, the Was winners it? Surf Aid. It's a okay. it's a fundraiser for Surf Aid. But yeah, Firewire Surfboards won the team event. Um, Chewy Reina and. Tyler Jensen and um, some other guys, Matt McCabe, I think. Oh, yeah, he rips. Yeah, man. he was ripping. He was their pro. Yeah. And some other guys, they, they had a hot team. I mean, yeah. Chewy's a pro, you know, yeah, yeah. basically. And uh, so Firewire Surfboards, congratulations to them. They raised a lot of money for Surf Aid, and they won the event. And is each team responsible for raising money? Yeah, how it works is you have five guys on your team. You're responsible for raising money. And you go out and you try to raise money. And the guy, the team that raises the most money gets to pick first which pro they want on their team. And so uh, I forget who raised the most money. But the first pro that was taken, I think, was Joel Tudor. Um, and so, yeah, like there was like Colton Sarlo, Alan's son, Alan Sarlo, Anthony Petruso, Nick Rosa, um, uh, Pascal Stan, you know, Seem, other, seems like you guys nailed it with Nick Rosa. I would expect in a shortboard comp, he would smoke everybody. Well, all the guys, all the Red Hot Pro shortboarders were shredders. I mean, I'm just saying he's a level above. He dude. was pretty hot. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. There were yeah. some other guys that were just as good, at least on the two waves that I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Gary Linden was on our team. So nice. Me and Gary and Nick Rosa and a couple guys, Ben and uh, Devin. Too bad the waves weren't 60 feet. <laughs> Gary did well, though he he waited. There's a timed event. You're supposed to finish. The faster you finish, the more points you get. Mm-hmm. And he sat for like 20 minutes waiting for a set wave. We're like, Gary. And he, of course, before the heat, Gary Linden was like, here's the strategy. No matter what, just catch your two waves and come in as fast as you can. Like he was just like drilling us, you know. And then he did and the he opposite. Did not, yeah, he waited for 20 minutes. Amazing. Right on. Well, yeah. So I guess there's a lot to discuss with this trestles, this ongoing, currently in the middle of trestles event. But let's start with that. The the topic that you just kind of referenced, um, which is Kelly Slater's insane four point ride. That's a great way to characterize it, you know, because it kind of throws a little bit of sarcasm. You know, you're, there's just a touch of sarcasm when you say that, just based on a four point ride and. Um, you know, really, the, you know, I think everybody's kind of scratching their head and saying, really, a 4.17? And um, I'm sure you saw this morning, they put up a video of mm. Kelly talking with Ross Williams about the ride. And then they cut to Richie Porter explaining why the score was the score. Um, Let I, me explain the ride. Yeah. For those who didn't see it, as if you... Uh, completely don't follow social media or surfing at all maybe you didn't see this but i had a friend text me who doesn't and he still knew about it so i don't know if he saw it on mainstream news or what basically kelly slater got the first wave of his round five heat against mick fanning it was a he got a left and got a four on it and then this next wave prior to mick fanning getting any waves or any scoring kelly takes off on a left 
bottom turns, takes off a little bit late, bottom turns around this kind of already breaking section, goes straight into lip to do what looks like a big backside 360 aerial. The wind catches his board and it becomes disconnected. Joe Trapel's calling it mid-ride is saying, oh, Kelly goes into a flyaway air. Kelly ends up landing on his board prone, his knees both kind of right in front of his tail pad, both knees touch down on the rails of his board, and he lands in the whitewash flat on his board prone, then stands up on his board in the whitewash and ends up riding out of it. So it's like this big 360 flyaway where he becomes disconnected, but coincidentally lands on his board, rides out of the thing on his stomach, pops up to his feet real quick, does a turn, does a 360, does a huge inside snap, and then kicks out of the wave. So the question is, was it an incompleted maneuver or was it the most incredibly fortuitous backside spin we've ever seen and the answer is it was a little bit of both you know he completed the ride but it was on his stomach at some point and how does that fit into the judging criteria well i think the most important part of the ride breakdown you just gave is that he was scored a 4.17 yes and i think that's where there's a lot of disgust with surf fans um you know look kelly slater fans we're emotional anyway you know we're we're you know fan short for fanatic also short for fanatical, you know, and uh, I just think that a 4.17 it just didn't, it just didn't seem right. I think like a 6.25 makes sense, a 6.7 maybe, you know, um, I, I don't know. It, it just seems it, to me that, look, he did the move, maneuver. It wasn't clean. There was certainly um, flow and transition was lost. Yeah. Um, but he didn't fall or he didn't not complete it right like he completed it exactly and in fact after he completed it um you know he went on to do a backside 360 he caught his nose a little bit then went and did a, a little top turn and then another good finishing turn um so the ride was completed i mean it wasn't like he fell and that's, I think, where there's a lot of problems with the 4.17. Well, there's problems with the language. They keep saying it was an incomplete ride, and your point is actually correct. Incomplete is not the right word to use because he did complete it. He ended up on his stomach at one small portion of the wave, but it, it highlights the um, the limitations of that language, but also the limitations of judging. because And it also there was highlights never, how incredibly talented he is. Here's the problem is they... they uh, deduct points, let's say, or don't allocate points when things when there's a loss of control. That's a general rule in the judging. If there's a loss of control, we're going to not com- com- give you points for that. Well, here's what's crazy about what Kelly did is he lost control, but he's so dynamic that he regained it, which I would argue you need to allocate more points towards, you know? If you can lose control at some point and then regather yourself, that in this instance, I thought was more dynamic, and we ought to award points for the dy- dynamicness or dynamism. 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 There's something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. So you know that's kind of where we're catching a hiccup here, and again, it just highlights the limitations of the judging criteria. I think. Well, and 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 then you know today, so you see Richie Porta on the video saying, "Look, Kelly Slater fell, and when you fall, you get a zero, and you know." I would argue, and I read online, which I thought it was a great take. Look, if you're going to score zeros or if you don't complete a ride, then why are you giving guys twos and threes and fours on really long tube rides at Pipe or Chopu where they don't come out? 
that should be a zero. Good point. You know, if that's what Richie Porter is saying, you know, right. and there's some there's some conspiracy. And I don't know Richie Porter. I'm sure he's a great guy, but there's some conspiracy haters that are saying that. You know, Richie Porter is pushing his guy, Mick Fanning, through the heat. and But a 4.17 seems wrong. It mm-hmm. just does not seem like the right score here. Right. And I think it, deep down in everyone's gut, they're like, really? A 4.17 for that? That was an incredible wave. People on the beach were screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, the judge, the announcers were at a loss for words. You can even catch Peter Mel out in the water saying, a 4.17, I would have given it a lot more than that. Yep. And then today, I watched the... Um, the pre uh, whatever they call the pre show in the morning, yeah, the morning show thing, yeah, and they were explaining it again, and you could tell that they were all going. It should have at least been a six point two. Of course, they were kind of tiptoeing around it because they're employed by the WSL. No, but I like that the WSL addressed it because in the past they things sort of like had to. No, but in the past they haven't. You right. know, in the past we've criticized them like, hey, this controversial thing happened and every the internet goes ablaze and everybody talks about it online, but the WSL commentators actually. It seems like they're not allowed to. Well, this time they faced it head on. Everybody gave their opinions. I don't know if you saw yesterday's morning show. Pete and Strider got into a little fight. That's what I saw. Pete, I saw they that. got contentious because yeah. Pete was trying to justify the low score. And Strider is like, no, 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 it should be higher. And Pete, literally, Pete puts his hand up him. to yeah. Strider, yeah. puts his hand up almost kind of in his face a little contentiously yeah. and goes, slow down, boss. Yeah, those that's in a direct quote. Slow down, boss. And then Strider kind of sits down, and Pete actually then misspeaks. Pete goes, Kel, or Mick had two scores on the board when Kelly did this, and so Kelly needed to go for a nine or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. no. Mick had no waves at exactly. this point, exactly. so Pete was being mean to Strider, kind of. And for once, Strider actually articulated himself very well. <laughs> the only time I know. shut down. So I, I actually have that video. I'll put it on SurfSplendorPodcast dot com. That's what yeah. I saw this morning, which I thought was fascinating. It's worth watching just yeah. to see that little. And that's good broadcasting, by the way. I'm yeah. glad Pete did that, and I'm glad you know, like it's good that that he kind of stood his ground and. And even though I'm, I'm not agreeing with what yeah. he said, I'm just saying I'm glad that he got you know that there was some passion there. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. You know? But it was mis it was misdirected because Strider actually had a good point, and Strider turns out was correct. Pete got a little too heated. I thought. Well, it that's made- okay. See, I'm good with that because that's that's interesting TV. That's it's I, interesting, but it made me like Pete less because I, well, I like Pete. That's, you know? that's between you and Pete. I can't, but I'm just saying from a, yeah. like if I was the producer, I'd be like, yeah, there's passion. These guys yeah. are, I mean, if they go to blows, that's like good. That's yeah. almost as good as a shark attack. Yeah. I wish Strider would have stood up for his own point after that. Yeah. You know, at, at the end of the day, it, it just, here's another thing though. Did you see the, the, the video that I'm talking about where Kelly yes. and Ross are talking yes. and then they cut to Richie Porta? I did. I was disappointed that the WSL didn't put Richie Porter and Kelly Slater together. Mm. I felt like that would... And it seemed like there was some really fine-tuned editing going on in that piece because we never got to hear what Kelly thought he should have been scored. And I'm sure at some point the question was asked, what should, what was the number that you think in he, your mind? He, he didn't did say he was okay with yes. it. He said he was okay with the score. But I, I would have loved to have him say, well, what do you think you should have got on that ride? You yeah. Know? And there's some contention to whether or not he actually was ever on his belly. Was it, in fact, that he landed on his knees? There's two marks on his board where his knees slammed. And did he go from his knees 
to his feet again. Because that would be more akin to a pig dog barrel. Right. Which, exactly. Which is Because acceptable. Richie Porter made a point to say, hey, he went to his belly. It's an incomplete ride. It's right. a fail. Right. It's a zero. Right. It's an incompleted maneuver. Mm-hmm. And so there's some stuff on, you know, I can read you some comments well, if you're interested well, from people that chimed in. You yeah. Know, it's kind of the hater net, but. No, I am. Um, for the record, though, the way that judging has worked in the past, I don't know if this is written in the judging handbook or not, but in general, the way that they've done it is if you're trying to connect a wave to the inside, let's say, and you lay down on your belly to paddle back in to catch the inside section, they consider that the end of one ride and then you catching the inside section would be the start of a second ride. Oh, So once your stomach hits the board, oh, interesting. it ends the scoring. So it seems... I did not know that. Yes. And so, again, I don't know if that's a definitive rule, but that's the way that they've generally done it in the past. So it seems like that air was kind of the ending. Whatever he did prior to Should landing on his... scores? In theory, that's what they would have done. So... That 4.17 came from after he stood up from the aerial. It came from the two turns and the 360. Right. 4.17. The air isn't even factored into that score if they're using their original criteria. If it's just those last three maneuvers, the air is not involved in the scoring and he gets a 4.17. And you look at his first ride, which was a 4.3. That makes sense. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. So that that... I didn't hear Porta say that's what he was doing, but knowing judging, that's what I would say the score came from. But at any rate. Well, the greatest thing, and I sort of touched on it already, but this one guy, um, Evan Flaherty, wrote on the WSL website after watching the Richie Porter comments about this. He said, if Richie Porter's logic is that you get zero points for an incomplete maneuver, then why do they throw threes and fours at barrel rides that people don't make but get lots of travel time in? You either make a barrel or you don't. So it should either be a zero or you know a six or an eight or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. Evan. It is a good point. But I like – so I get his point completely. He's challenging Richie's stance. But I like that the judges give points for the effort, of course. You know, when you're driving through a barrel, if you make it farther than the other guy did, you should get more points than the other guy. I like that judging allows for the nuance. I do too. But if you're saying, look, exactly. Kelly I know. Slater, you know, there yeah. was effort there too. And- you're right. So that's why I think he's smart to challenge Porta's kind of logic. And we need to call him out on that and be like, look, Kelly should get awarded for the effort. What is the name of this uh, controversy? Is it Trestle's Gate? Is it Ariel Gate? Is it Porta Gate? Is it Judge Gate? Yeah. What's the, what's the, uh, you know, if you tore away all the trappings, what are we really talking about here? And then add Gate to the end of it. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Spin, uh, I don't know. Slatergate? I'm trying hard. I can't I really know, it's access hard. it. I think you have to go with Richie Portagate. But it's too but personal. It is personal. And Porta actually has been a lot involved in multiple gates because whenever there's a judging debacle, yeah, it like lands on his shoulders. Gate. Right. So it needs to be like spin, Kelly spin. Got to combine like... 4.17 4. gate? There. That's a good one. 4.17 gate. The most insane four-point ride ever gate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little long, but yeah. Okay, I'll work on it. Um, so this leads to a larger discussion. Well, let me... Let me actually back up a little bit. Um, Kelly needed a big score at the end of the heat, and he actually got 
a proper set wave right that he could have gotten the score on. And to be honest, he he kind of bogged. He a bogged. He underperformed on that final yeah. wave, and um, that's kind of been overlooked. So Kelly, what happened, dude? That was your opportunity to bang out a nine, and I think he got like an eight six or something. Well, I think what Strider and Pete were talking about when they had their little contention moment was. If he would have received what they thought should have been, or at least Strider thought should have been a 6.25 or 6.5, yeah. which I agree with. I agree with. That puts Kelly Slater's headspace. Now, he's got a 6 and a 4, 3, a 6.5 and a 4.3. Mick has no rides, yeah. although he gets one right away, and it's like a 7.8 or something. As always. But, yeah. By the way, yeah. So... Anyway, I just think it puts Kelly's headspace in a different place. Than, That's a great point. Than, you know, two fours, and I can't believe I did that, and they only gave me a four, and all of a sudden he's a little deflated. Mm-hmm. You know, deflate gate. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great point because had he gotten the six, then that last ride that he, I was just talking about would have allowed him to win the heat. He wouldn't have needed a nine. No, on because it. his two waves were a 6.5 and a. I mean, it just sort of depends, but yeah, he would have been a lot closer. Yeah. He would have been like, it would have been like tenths of a point. Exactly. Instead of two points. Yeah. And um, perhaps the reason why he might have underperformed on that last wave could have had to do with the buckle that he sustained from that air, the two big oh, yeah. knee, knee dents right. on his board. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things going on there. But um, Kelly ended up losing that heat to Mick Fanning, which puts Kelly out of contention for the world title, which yes. is the bigger conversation. Yes. So um, there's a lot of implications to that score. Yeah. Additionally, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And so Kelly, um, in his post-teen interview, said, quote, to be honest, I'm really going to think about if I'm going to go to Europe now because that loss puts me out of the title shot. I'm just carrying too many injuries. I need some time off. It would be nice to take a couple of months. And if I didn't go to Europe and pipe or Europe, I could just focus on pipe. That would give me almost five months to get myself back into working order for next year. End wow. quote. So there's a lot of subtext there. Um, I didn't meaning, hear the next year part. Yeah, meaning, which I think Kelly knows. You know, your title run starts the year before. Your body has to be fit. You got to put yourself in the rankings. So if Kelly drops down the rankings by not going to Europe, um, he won't be at the bottom of the seeding list. He'll be somewhere in the mid-tier, which means he'll be surfing against mid-tier surfers at the beginning of next year, which I think will be beneficial for him. Um, There's a lot going on there. But I like that he's focusing on next year, which means maybe he's not going to retire as soon as we thought he might. Yeah, that's that's the thing is he's so smart you just don't know what to read into all of that. The fact that he's not going to go to Europe or that he's contemplating not going to Europe. At first, there's a little bit of I'm going to take my ball and go home. That that was sort of the vibe I got a little bit. Like, well, I'm just not going to play with you guys. Mm. And he might not have meant that. That's just what I was kind of thinking. You know, he's probably like, why do it if I'm not going to win the world title and I got a lot of other stuff going on in my life? I could probably have fun and. And we just watch a swell hit Tavarua and go there with my girlfriend or whatever. You know, it does make sense to just take a break and then go to Hawaii. Yeah. Um, but you got to think the WSL is like going, oh, man, Richie, why didn't you score him a little higher? Now he's not going to Europe. That yeah. It's a pure European sponsor. And I don't even know if we have European sponsors. But if there's sponsors, they're bummed that Kelly Slater's not going to be at their event. Completely. That's a total nightmare for them. Well, Quicksilver being the France event, that was Kelly's lifelong partner you know i mean they're not anymore but still um 
but I mean, I think if the waves are pumping, maybe he would go. Maybe that's going to dictate his decision. Probably will. Do you, I mean, is he going to want to go sit over there for three weeks if there's marginal swell and they're doing lay days throughout the event? Probably not. You know, I mean, it's a it's a mission. What does the swell look like for this event? Because I know we've got some down days here coming up, but I think for the final, I think for the weekend, it looks pretty solid. Looks like Thursday they're going to rerun probably, and it looks good. Yeah. Like it will be good. Yeah. Some solid southwest ground swell from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on in this event. I've got a number of topics here. How good does Miguel Pupo look? That well, guy's got the most insane backside vertical attack. Like he looks so good. It's hard. I know he's not in it. It's hard for me to say that that looks better than Wiggly or they kind of look Edelo. the same. Are they all three very similar. I, they look different. I mean, Miguel's more buttery. I'd I say. Think, yeah, I would agree. Wiggly's with that. like Wiggly. They keep, they keep talking about Wiggly's timing. And they are so right. His timing is better than any surfers I've ever seen because they're like, it's not quite power. There is power, but he's not the strongest guy. He just but meets it at the right apex it, in the moment. You it's know? crazy. It's really I was uncanny. just really impressed with Miguel's backside turn. But you're right. Wiggly and, and Italian Ferrari, they all, they're, you know, yeah, semi-similar. I, they are. But um, I... So I, I love Miguel, and he was on my team, so I definitely agree with you. He was looking amazing. Um, one thing that's interesting about Slater, I don't know if you saw our buddy Ryan Simmons on Facebook. Um, he posted something, and he said, look, does anybody realize or care that on the men's side of the WCT, CJ's retiring, Sippo doesn't look like he's going to requalify. If Kelly retires... That yeah, would Nat leave Young. only one American surfer on tour, meaning Nat, me Nat Young would be the only American on tour. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me at all. It sort of leads to a bigger issue, which we always talk about, which is like, does the sport matter to the industry? You know, like, and even this aerial thing, it's, it, and, and even beyond that, the fact that they had this heritage series and they didn't judge them, they just let them go have an expression session. To me, it's like, Look, if you put two old fart pro tennis players out on the tennis court, they they score points. They're trying to win. Yeah, it's like why are we doing this if we're not scoring points? Isn't this supposed to be a quote unquote sport? Yeah, and why are you just sending them out there with a jersey to celebrate them? And you know those guys want to be scored. They're total sportsmen. Those Completely. guys, they're bummed they're not being scored. They wanted to. You know, there's been no resolution as to who the hot older guy is. Every single person participating and watching is keeping a running tally in their head. Exactly. Except the judges. Exactly. So it's stupid. It's bullshit. And if it's a sport, then score the damn sport. You yeah. Know? Did you watch the Heritage Series? I watched it this morning. Um, who surfed the best? They were all surfing pretty good. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, like it's, I guess Sean. I saw, I saw the first 10, 15 Michael minutes Hull. of it and Sean did a sick front side like jam or snap or something that I was like holy crap it was all rather under uh, underwhelming really I mean for me because that's sort of like the guys I looked up to when I was a kid those Mm -hmm. were my guys I was into it but I can see if if you're a generation ahead of me yeah you don't give a crap about these guys I in a sense I don't but when I look at him take off on a wave and I go that's a 60 year old dude riding a I mean basically a short board it's kind of inspired he just ripped that thing you know yeah um, I saw a comment saying that uh, Idolo caught a wave after his heat that he took off switch stance on and surfed it better switch stance than any of the dudes in the Heritage Series heat, well, which doesn't really defame the Heritage Series guys. It just shows how incredible. Here's Idolo the is. funny thing: um, there's a 
Alan Sarlo is probably 60 years old or he's in that generation. Alan Sarlo absolutely friggin' kills Malibu. Yeah. Like he lights it up like a 25 year old. Right. Especially if it's big. It's got to be a little bit yeah, bigger. Yeah, sure. Alan Sarlo would have went out there and s- demolished all of those guys based yeah. on the way I've seen Alan surf year after year after year at, at Malibu. Right. And I even told Alan, I go, dude, you should be in that thing. You would absolutely destroy all of those guys. Like he would kill it. The amount of spray that comes off of that guy's tree trunk legs is insane. Yeah. So I'm just throwing it out there. They should have invited him. Well, um, in regard to that comment about Americans on the CT, um, I just want to hear your opinion. I, I think yeah. I know. I, I probably know your it's opinion. But why, why? I think the well, North American wait. surfers are soft. Okay. Um, they, they don't have any um, drive to be world champions. And, and the, the, the reason is there's no incentive to be a world champion. I mean, Evan Geiselman, Kanoe Igarashi. I mean, you name the guys. You know the guys better than I do. All of these young, hot North American surfers. Where are they? Well, Kanoe looks like he's going to qualify. My And I hope he does. But, you know, you and I have heard from well-placed sources that, you know, I don't know. Is he going to do well? We don't know. But I, my point is, is that... They're not on tour and winning because they have no need to because they're softened by the industry, which pays them millions of dollars right. without doing anything. Right. They're getting paid. Just go out and look cool and hang out with chicks and party and we'll throw some Instagrams up and you'll get a bunch of followers and it'll be unreal and everything's good. Whereas in Brazil, the only way out of your current situation is to win contests. There's not a lot of free surfing Brazilians. I mean, I can name Yago Dora and... That's basically it. Maybe there's a couple more, you know? Um, and so, yeah, in America, you can name a lot of them that are able to make a really, really good living without competing. By the way, Kanoa's in third on the QS. Um, so he will, looks like he will qualify for sure. Um, and then how about, I would, this is a total side note, but I was just thinking with Kanoa and his, Kanoa and his Japanese heritage. Um, Hiroto Ohara, who won the US Open, and then surfed in this event as a wild card. He ended up losing to Josh Kerr in round two or three. He surfed good. He surfed so freaking good. That he kid's did. ripping. He, did. he probably weighs a buck forty-five, but he has some he man com- hacks on. And him. he was composed. He didn't look. No, he was amazing. Like, he looked like he was comfortable. I was really, really impressed. So North American surfing, it's just, it's, it's sad. Yeah. And and you you know when you try to point fingers or figure it out, you've just kind of got to look at the industry and go. Dude, the Gadaskas brothers are getting paid pretty damn good by Vans, and they don't even need to be in the event. So yep. why do I need to even try to be a competitive surfer? And and if I don't, then is surfing even really a sport? Are there any like free tennis players that just play tennis and look good and get millions of dollars in endorsements? No. Yeah. You better be good. Yeah. And so, you know, it brings back and then and it brings it what even brings it back more is this is this um four point one seven gate. Yeah. Which is like it's just so subjective. Yeah. It's frustrating. Is well, it a sport? David, yeah. I've been preaching that it's not really a I'm, sport. I'm taking the and the op- industry seems to agree with me. No, I'm taking the opposite stance. It is a sport. It's not, it's not, it doesn't fit the rules of competitive sport that you define, but it's still a sport. Still getting my heart rate up, still having fun competing with my buddies, you know? You competing with your buddies? What do you mean? Just if you're surfing with your buddies, oh, well, I'm, yeah. I'm taking notes who smashed the lip harder, you know? Right. Oh, so I'm that's just saying, sport-like to me. I'm just saying that, is it, um, is it a sport in the sense that I know the industry saying. can support it and the consumer fan base can support it and, you know... 
It's frustrating. Here's another topic I would like to bring up. Round two, Ian Crane versus Felipe Toledo. Did you see this heat? I heard Felipe Toledo got pushed. He did. That's what everybody's saying. Ian Crane is a wild card local San Clemente kid, friends with Kaloe. You know, they grew up together. Goofy footer. He freaking ripped so hard. He got two rights, got a nine on the first one, just like absolutely smashed the thing. Like as good as any C-tier we've seen, including Wiggly and Miguel and those guys we named. Um, And then Felipe got a very good wave that... People are saying might have been underscored. I think they gave him about an eight, but it could have been a nine range. Early in the heat, you mean? Yeah. yeah. It was like two mean wraps and then like a big air, but not the biggest air we've ever seen. And my question with that was kind of like, did they underscore Felipe because it's Felipe? And we, we've seen him do bigger airs, and this one wasn't as big, so therefore it was an eight instead of a nine. But to be honest, if Eretz Aaron Buru would have done that air, we would have given him a nine-nine, you know? Um, know so there's that's... a lot of, there's again, from the judging standpoint, a lot going on in that heat. You're saying Felipe got pushed, or that's what the internet is saying. There is an argument to be made. I'm not saying that necessarily because it really was splitting hairs. It's just a matter of if you're going to take out the champ, you got to knock out the champ. I'm okay with that theory if that is in fact going to be the the way that it's you know that's upheld throughout all of the the entire year. Yeah, you know, and that sort of that's a whole different discussion. But yeah. I like that. I think you should have to take out the champ, but he's not the champ. He's just well, Felipe Toledo. He's not the champ. He's the in, guy that pushed out in Chopu. He won the lowers QS earlier this year. I mean, that would be the only. You know, and he's number one on the tour. I mean, he, I guess Adriano's number one, but he's number two on the tour. So, a champ of sorts. Um, but that's an interesting heat to to look at. And um, there was another really interesting thing that's worth discussing, which is Seabass versus Michelle Berez. I think it was round two as well. Did you see this interference call? No. All right, check this out. Seabass handily won the heat over Michelle Berez. He... The clock was winding down. He had priority. Michelle paddles for the a peak that's coming, needing whatever the score was, a 6-5 or something like that. Literally, as the clock's counting down with five seconds left, Michelle paddles into this wave and stands up on the peak. Seabass, having priority, paddles in from the shoulder. So the clock's winding down, five seconds, four, three, two, one. Our, Michelle's already standing up. The buzzer sounds, then Seabass stands up on the shoulder and surfs in front of Michelle. Well, even though Seabass had priority, he stood up after the buzzer, which means the heat's over. So Michelle has the wave before the buzzer. So it's his wave. It's his wave. He If Seabass would have stood up before the buzzer, his priority would have went into effect, but he didn't. So Michelle has a raise, the I'm wave, right now. the heat's over, Seabass takes off after the heat ends, hinders Michelle's scoring potential, therefore gets an interference call. Wow. Yeah. That's that's so some nitty-gritty stuff right they, there. They, gave, they, they finished the heat with, with Seabass winning the heat handily, went to commercial, got five minutes into the next heat, and then go, whoa, 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 we're going to backtrack a little bit here. Turns out the judges reviewed the tape. Seabass stood up after the buzzer, I'm watching and he loses the heat. He stood up at the buzzer, not even after it. it well, your hands right- have to leave the rail before the buzzer sounds, and it didn't. So that was controversial, and Seabass, of course, I mean, it's in the rule book that way. Seabass didn't know the rule or kind of didn't think about it at the time, so he ends up losing the heat. But it's kind of, as a fan, 
it's a bummer. Seabass won the heat. And secondly, Seabass always underperforms. And he like, I don't think he's won a heat this year, you know? And this was the one heat that he actually executed his full potential on. And wow. it sucks to see him have it stripped away. Yeah. And then, I just and then of course, that. and then of course, Michelle goes on and loses his next heat. So it's all a wash at that point. That's, that's gnarly. Yeah. I just watched it. Wow. Well. Lots of judging things going on in this event. What about, um, Kolohe and, you know, we talked last time about Kolohe and, it's like, you know, he's been on tour, what, three years, four years? Sure, something like that. I mean, he had a tough draw. He had to beat, he, he had to go up against Mick Fanning. Yeah. In round three. Yeah. He was your dark horse pick. Yeah. But, I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on, on, on Kolohe? I mean, at some point, you know, the rookie jitter should be over. We talked about this last time. How Kolo- did you think he served? Do you expect him to do better than round three at Trestles? Kolohe completely mentally collapsed in the heat. In my opinion, he surfed very, very well. It was a slow heat prior to his, and so it looked like he went out with the strategy of get busy. I can post sixes on waves that would normally be threes, and I'm going to do that, get Mick up against the wall. That was his strategy, and that's what he started out doing. Mick stuck to his strategy, which was wait out the back and put two eights on the board. So Kaloe did his thing. Mick did his thing. Kaloe got a six or a five or whatever it was. Then a set wave came. Mick got an eight. Well, Kaloe at that point should have readjusted his strategy and goes, okay, now I'm going to go sit out the back because I can also post eights on set waves. But he didn't. It seems like he stuck to his flailing strategy and felt the pressure and then ended up not getting the sixes that he was even trying to get in the first place. He just kind of fell apart. And then Mick got that one eight, paddled, waited for another set wave, got another, while Kaloe stayed on the inside scrambling for mediocre waves. And it's like, what are you doing, dude? Mick's got eights. You're not going to get... You could get sixes on those waves like you planned to. Now you're not even doing that. And secondly, there's no way you're going to get eights on those. Right. So he surfed really, really well for what he But it's like, dude, you got to get out the back and get a set wave. Yeah. You're not going to beat Mick Fanning at this, you know? Hmm. Um, by the way, my dark horse pick for this event was Ace, who, by the way, is Still in the in quarterfinals. It. Yeah, he's my... I, well, he was your... But he's on my team, yeah. so I'm happy yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got... On terms of fantasy, yeah. I have one surfer in every heat. Oh my Currently, God, really good in you. the men and the women's. I don't care about the women's, but that's insane. You must be doing good in the men's. <laughs> I yeah, I have three. Okay, that, but are they in separate heats? Yeah, they are. Good for you. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. So um, another thing worth discussing: Freddie P's really odd exit from the CT. <laughs> really strange retirement. Yeah, I didn't. I heard all about it. I never watched it, you know, but I guess he got a 10, came in and said, that's it, I'm done. Freddie surfed round one, won the heat, came in, yes, and said, I'm retiring. I'm not going to surf in round two. Was the or plan, round three, was round the plan three. that as soon as I get a 10, I'm going to retire? Or was no. the plan he was going to do that no matter what? He didn't give his plan. He said that he's been thinking about this for six months and it's been a lot of questioning and like through family support he finally decided that he was going to retire but it's like did he decide that prior to this event and if he did why didn't he mention it and did he decide he was going to finish the event or like why all of a sudden after winning round one and again if you would have lost round one then maybe you go okay i don't want to go to europe but why withdraw and his family was here too like his wife and kid were on the beach so it's like you're already in california with your family why would you withdraw? It is, it is strange. Really strange. Yeah. 
he seemed. But the feeling is that I'm going to go out on top with a ten. I mean, was it that spontaneous, or was it you know like maybe it wasn't planned out? He's just like, you know what? That's that's it. You know, like I can't believe it. I got a ten, honey. Yeah. I'm going to retire right now. Let's just do this. No, it it seemed like now that you're saying that, I think he said that he decided it mid or he let the other surfers in the heat know he let Bede and Gabriel know that this was going to be his last heat, but he got the 10 after that. He got the 10 on his last wave of the heat, but it's very, very suspect to me. Like it seems to like it was well thought out decision. He was articulate. He was very gracious. He was very, um, endearing. I, I sort of read into it and I didn't see what happened, but my feeling was, He's already spoke with the WSL. Yes. He's on the broadcast team. They want him in Hawaii to just focus on that, and he'll be like our our Hawaiian liaison guy on the you know. And I just saw it like he's got a job. Like they've given him a job as a broadcast guy. That mu- and that's why. Oh, so I know it doesn't that- make sense to then just do it then. No, and it was and- still spontaneous. But I just felt like he must have had a backup plan with the WSL as the new broadcast guy. That very well may be, but that doesn't define why he's doing it in this way. I agree. And also, you would think he'd want to surf pipe at the end of the year. I know. Strange. Yeah. What a strange way to retire. So it seems like, if I have to read into it, like there's got to be something going on personally. Maybe kids need attention or like there's a health issue somewhere and... You know, you just got to tend to it immediately. And, yeah. and you don't want to necessarily bring that information out publicly. Right. Um, so I hope that all is well for Freddie P and his family and everything. And it is all on the up and up. Um, but it's a really oddly timed exit. And we're sad to see him go. Yeah, we are. He served incredibly well. But we're glad that. to get him in the broadcast booth. <laughs> That's an assumption. We don't have that information. <laughs> I've interviewed him and he's good. Well, no, but it's an as assumption as that he has the job. Oh, right. We but don't know that he has that job. The bummer will be if they try to stifle his his sort of you know his energy and his passion you know like if they try to like put a wet blanket on it that'd be a bummer yeah because that's where he's gorgeous is when he's doing that like off the cuff riffing just going you know what i think that's bs you know like he's he can be that john McEnroe guy yeah for the record though do you have any information that he's gotten a job offer no i just assumed that the wsl would be stupid not to hire him no, well, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree that that, that would be a perfect fit. You know, there's there's a couple of guys. There's, I think we talked about this, right? But Saxon Boucher, yeah, Saxon. Barton Lynch, and Freddie P. Yeah, could fill three spots in that WSL lineup. Yeah, and we could remove three people from it, and it would be a better broadcast. I agree. With those three. Yep, they've got Chris Cote in on this one. For the first time, I mean, yeah, we've I seen that. him. We've seen him a lot in the qualifying series events, yeah, U.S. Open, whatever. Uh, but this is the first time he's done a CT event. Yeah, so good for Chris. Yeah. Um, one other thing that is very worth discussing: Kelly Slater in the early rounds of this event surfed a surfboard that had no logos, no identifying shaper logo on it. Everybody's wondering where he got the board. It looked incredible. He surfed very, very well on it. Kelly claims he doesn't even know who shaped it. <laughs> That's what do you think about that? Is that code for uh, you know? How I, do you not know who shaped it? Or of all people, Kelly would need to know. He, he says would want to know, but it, I mean, he literally said he doesn't know who shaped it. He doesn't care. He ordered a couple boards when he got here from a friend, and uh, maybe it came from a factory that he you know like a, he knows which factory it came from, but doesn't know. Which shaper in that? Fa- like, let's just say it came from Lost. 
but he doesn't know if Matt Biolis himself shaped it. Right. That could be, you know, but, um, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Like, well, I'm watching him ride it right now. He does look pretty buttery on it. Um, I don't know what to say other than kind of what you've already touched on, you know, like maybe that's what it is. He just doesn't know. Like, I don't know if there's any backstory or any conspiracy behind that. Maybe, you know, he just got some boards and somebody said who shaped it. And he's probably like, I don't know. It just seems like if somebody, if somebody gave Kelly that answer, like, Hey, I'm not sure who shaped this one. Kelly'd be like, call the factory, find out whose hand touched my board because I'm going to go ride this in an event that I have world title implications. Well, it could be then that he does know and he doesn't want to say, right. That's probably more to the point, right? Because it could be whoever, Brian Bulkley or yeah. Chaz Smith or, I mean, uh, Chaz Wickwire. <laughs> who knows? You know, who, you know what I mean? And he just doesn't, for contractual reasons, and maybe it was Matt. Yeah. You know, quite frankly, maybe it was Biolas, and he's like, oh, uh, maybe we should keep this on the down low for a little bit because yeah. of whatever. Yeah. Who knows? It also seems like if that were the case that he could just say, yeah, I'm not really going to disclose who shaped this. We would all understand why. Yeah, it's weird that he would say, "I don't know who shaped it." I don't know who shaped it. That's that to me sounds like it came from the Channel Islands factory because there's just a bunch of guys up there that are, you know, they're punching boards out of that machine, and then there's a bunch of guys that are finishing it. And he probably has three or four guys that he trusts to do that finish work, and he literally doesn't know which of those four guys. But then why not put a Channel Islands logo like the board that he wrote in round five? Because he's yeah. riding a Channel Islands in round five, and we're not questioning which of those four guys shaped right. this. We just accept that it's a Channel because Islands. Because of his Firewire deal, maybe. I don't know. No, but I'm saying your argument is negated by the fact that he wrote a Channel Islands in round five. Right. So, you know, like, yeah. I'm, it's so confusing to me. Yeah. This whole event, I've been so confused. Yeah, you're Why confused. did Freddie P exit? Why is Kelly riding this board? Yeah. Why did why, that interference Why did Kolohe ride on the inside the whole heat? Why is Scott Bass wearing jeans in the Malibu Cup? Yeah, bell-bottom <laughs> jeans with puka shell necklace. So it's a full hipster convention up there. Is it really? Oh my god, <laughs> hipster convention! Yeah, it's super uber hipster longboard scene up there. Yeah, it's kind of cool. No leash. Oh no, hell no. No leash longboards. No leash. No leash plug. No leash loop. Are they wearing the long john weddy? Oh yeah, with farmer john. The tank top with the long legs. Oh yeah. Brutal, dude. <laughs> You're not one of those. I love that suit. Do you? That suit is functional. I think it's non-functional. Why do you need the long are legs? You a, are you a like long sleeve short john guy or a short sleeve full suit guy? Short sleeve full. Okay, well, then I'm this ta- is just an this is just an extension of that. You wear the same exact suit, but when the water's sixty eight instead of sixty six. Yeah, but my point is like keeps your lower half warm when it's all in the water. Too much warmth on the bottom, not enough on the top. Like it's a warm it's inequitable. In the air, it's seventy eight degrees outside. So your arms don't ever touch the water. No, but the sun radiates into my arms, whereas my lower half's always generally in the water. I know. So my point is, just put the your short point sleeves is negated on. Is what no, this no. Is. I'm trying to use the word I just used one minute ago. Um, who's your <laughs> pick? This is where I get my vocabulary from you. Negated. Who's your pick? To win the event, quarterfinals, we got uh, Felipe Toledo versus Joel Parkinson, Adriano versus Wiggly, Ace versus Mick, Gabriel versus uh, Nat Young. Well, if I go along the whole Richie Porta's pushing Mick Fanning conspiracy theory that I read uh, on WSL's website, then it seems that Mick Fanning's bound to win this because Richie Porta's pushing him through. So Mick Fanning would be over Ace, and then he'd have to face Gabriel versus... Nat, which will probably be Gabriel. But 
My feeling is Wiggly Dantas is going to win this event. Wow. I know. I know. That's kind of a that's kind of a left fielder right there. That's that an is. outlier, but um you know with Joel and Mick, you know, very you know experienced out at Trestles, but shit, Wiggly's been surfing there for years. He just looks that backside attack looks it looks way more worthy of points than the standard Joel and Mick cruising super smooth hacks on the regular foot. Here's what you're going to experience with Wiggly, okay? And I like him. He's on my team. I want him to win. He's going to fold under pressure. He's, he's going to have a bad heat once in an event. I, I'm not sure if it's happened yet in this event or not, but it's kind of like Mick isn't going to ever have a bad heat. Adriano, never going to have bad heat. Gabriel, never going to. Those Especially guys are going to get. Mick gets pushed by Richie Porter. No, but he always gets two eights, you know? And so whatever but the does other. Does he deserve him? I, yes, he we does. We should really look at he some does. of those. I watched that. Some of he those would, rides. I watched that. He would, Kelly. He always deserves his two eights. The question is, does the other contender show up and get two eight and a halves, you know? And so Mick will get those scores no matter what. Gabriel will get those scores. Wiggly, he can get those scores, but he's not going to do it every single time. That's why I'm calling a Felipe versus Gabriel final with Felipe asserting his dominance over Gabriel. Wow. Bang. That's wow. what I got. All right. That's that's well thought out. Mine's sort of more of an emotional. I like Wiggly. He's looking at those guys are looking insane. On They're all the same guy. Like, no, the, Wiggly, see, I Italian, see. Ferrari, and, and uh, Pupo. Yeah. I'll I take know they're not if you broke it down. You, I know you could yeah. like determine which guys you know uses head and shoulders and which guy doesn't. Like you know them very well. <laughs> but, but well, you can by the dandruff on their shoulder. My point is, they've all got that super incredible buttery yeah, timing do. on the backside they hack do. that just looks so much better and more vertical, and more in the pocket than the front side guy. So Felipe has the potential of faltering. Uh, that I was just talking about where he could have a heat that he doesn't show up for, you know? So there's that concern. But here's the other deal. If the waves get a little bit smaller, you're going to have to pick guys like Felipe over Parco, you know? Yeah. Like if they end up surfing, because those first couple days of the event were pretty big and it, it really was a benefit for guys like Parco. Uh, it's going to be head high. This okay. Sasswell up is going to be head high. It's going to be inconsistent. But if you sit and wait, there's going to be head high sets. Dude, there was head high waves there this morning. At lowers, yeah, Early. just south wind. Not even before then, it was offshore, like at the crack. What were you doing, dude? I checked the waves everywhere at the crack. Oh, just on the cams. It's proprietary info. I can't tell you, but you got a helicopter. You sending your drone out? I've got like a live drone feed, and I just run the coastline with it. Wow. Yeah. So that's where your surf report's coming from. When you post that surf report, you got the drone flying, checking everything out. Kelly's board does look insane. The slow mode, the anonymous board. Yeah, round one. Yeah, Ano By the way, anonymous Dusty Payne did something really weird that I thought was really lame. Dusty Payne, and I think is round two heat or round three. I don't know. He lost in round two. He caught a wave right off the bat and did something in honor of Rabbit Bartholomew. I need to watch it and check it out. But I heard he Martin do? Potter go, "Oh, he must have done that." Um, as a tribute to Rabbit Bartholomew, who's here on the beach. He did something. And when he did it, he gave up priority. And I thought to myself, that's the stupidest thing. You know who would hate that? Rabbit Bartholomew would hate that. He's yeah. such a competitive animal. He'd be like, that's the stupidest strategy ever. If you want to honor me, buy me a burger afterwards. How did he honor him? I don't know. We got. We should watch it. Well, if you could do it quickly. Yeah. I, uh, it was round two, heat six. He lost to Bede Derbich. Yeah. Um, that was the heat. And it pumped, bummed me out. I don't remember it. Uh, I, I, I think I watched that heat. I don't really remember it. But man, 
we've always had Dusty on our team because he's a cheap pick for fantasy, but God, he never freaking delivers, dude, on the goods. Hopefully in Hawaii, maybe he will, but he's constantly underperformed. So Ross Williams apparently made reference to he knew what was happening there that um, he took off prone took off in the prone whitewash as an as an homage to Rabbit Bartholomew based on something that Rabbit did a long time ago. But Ross really sounded like he had some inside info on. Okay, that. it's not like he just saw it and then connected the dots and goes, <laughs> "Oh, that happened once upon a time," and Dusty's recreating you can tell it. Talk about it, or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, the um, comp will probably resume on Thursday or so, and uh, it's just one day left to run the men and the women. So, exciting times. I'm psyched. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see this thing play out and, um, and, and see what happens with the world title race at this point. It's sort of, it's, it's sort of narrowed. It's, it is. It's wide open. Or I mean, you're right. It's narrowed, but there's still... A number six, of six guys. guys. Yeah, Kelly's out of it. I think Julian is slightly still in, but he lost early in the event, which was a shocker. And John John Florence was a shocker, too. I think that upset everybody's fantasy teams. Got beat by Glenn Hall, who we never understand, but I always root for. Because it's just like, it's just, uh, it's, it's, like, it's funny. And I yeah. like hearing him in the post-heat interviews. He's like one of the little people of Stonehenge, you know, He's running around on stage. And his, no one knows who they were, what they were doing, but oh, how they danced. Here's my favorite two post-heat interviews ever, or whenever they happen. Glenn Hall, because of his high-pitched voice, and Silvana Lima. <laughs> she, she is amazing to listen to. Like, really, like the fastest cadence of speech ever. But also, English is a second language, so you only pick up like every fifth word or something. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> so... She also has been underperforming. She came in hot at the beginning of the year and is just completely not delivered. No, so it's a I wouldn't. I don't know who you're talking about. Of course you don't. So no, but anyway. I did watch the uh, U.S. Open women, so that was fun. Serena got beat. Oh, you're talking not surfing? Yeah, I'm talking. Uh, okay, because there's a U.S. Open of women's for surfing too. I, you might not have known this. <laughs> no, no. Joanne DeFay won this year. No. Oh. Uh, Do you know who that is? No. No. Okay. Anyway, yeah. so your U.S. Open was entertaining, though? Yeah. Good. Cool. Did you watch it yesterday, Federer and Djokovic? No. Nope. All right. Well, anyway, yeah, um, okay, we're well, supposed to be back next week because this technically was a an unusual week. We do it every other week. Oh, really? We did Surf News last week. We got Surf News next week. This was a Surf Aid show. Oh, um, next week? We should just do it two weeks from now. Okay. Don't you think? <laughs> No. Oh. Got to keep up with surf news, bro. Yeah, but we just did it. No, all we did was lowers. Okay. Come on, buddy. All right. Don't act like you got a super busy schedule. Or something. You're just Yeah, right. You're just trying to get more water time. Okay, whatever. <laughs> we'll discuss off air. We'll, uh, we'll, I've been getting a lot of good, a lot of good um, response about the show, though. Good. A lot of people are stoked on, on the banter between you and I, which is, um, which is all... Uh, quite sincere, by the way. There's just obviously it's not made up. We like to give only, each other a little jive here and there. Only took us two years to work out our mojo, dude. <laughs> I know. 
When are we going to start making money on this show, dude? You keep asking me. I wish I had an answer. Let's Damn. ask the listeners. Yeah, send us your money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I honestly, I've had a, a lot of listeners over the last year or two say, like, maybe we should set up a donation thing. Yeah. Um, which I've considered doing. Just haven't sat down and figured it out. Well, you and I need to do that. Yeah. We've been saying that for a really long time. If we do two shows a month, I mean, it should be, if they paid us enough, I'd do it every week. I don't know if they could handle us every week. I'd be down to do a show every week. Yeah. I mean, I already do a show every week, but I'd be down to do a surf news every week for yeah. sure. So, we'll work right, out. Well, Let's, until next time, which I guess is next week. Yes. Pro bono. Yeah. <laughs> uh, adios and aloha. Surfsplendorpodcast.com is, of course, where you come to find everything that we discussed in today's episode. I've got a TED Talk posted there um, that Dr. Dave Jenkins gave. Um, and then, like, all this, all these uh, WSL videos that we discussed, um, the rides, the Peter, um, Pete Mel versus Strider, little kind of contentious discussion that they had all that stuff is also embedded on surfsplendorpodcast.com you can find it on the wsl's website but it's a little harder to navigate and then they have a youtube account as well which they upload things to chronologically but you kind of have to dig to find what you need unless you know the exact date and time that it was posted but again no need i've got all of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com and um, if you're new to the show, welcome. We have an archive of every past episode also on our website. And then if you listen to the show in iTunes or Stitcher, we always just ask that you rate and review the show there. That helps with our show's rankings, which then helps other people to find the show if they're just using the surf the sorry, the search function. Um, it helps them to find if they just put in the word surf, you know, ours is likely to come up first, which I think possibly it does. We're probably the um, most rated, most reviewed surf podcast out there. So there you go. All right. Thank you for sharing the show with friends. Thank you for rating and reviewing. We'll be back next week with an all new episode of surf news and on and on every week after that. So, so thank you for contributing and keeping this snowball picking up momentum. All right. This is David Scales saying, in the next week, until next episode, I'm encouraging you get out in the water, catch a few waves, and shred on. All by and by, cheer up, my brothers. All by and by, cheer up, my brothers.